quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And today, the number of coronavirus cases is nearing 5 million uh, in the United States. And one of those cases is now Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who just tested positive. He was not showing symptoms, but was scheduled to meet with President Trump. The governor is at least the third person in just the last week to test positive because they were tested before coming into contact with the president. Yet when it comes to the general public, President Trump has suggested the U.S. is testing too much. Dr. Anthony Fauci says testing in this country is still not where it needs to be. And with deaths rising in at least 15 states, the CDC now projects there could be up to 20,000 more lives lost by the end of this month, as CNN's Athena Jones reports. This is a predictor of trouble ahead. A new warning for nine U.S. cities and California's Central Valley, where the rate of people testing positive for coronavirus is rising. It's a clear indication that you are getting an uptick in cases, which inevitably, as we've seen in the southern states, leads to surges, and then you get hospitalizations, and then you get deaths. And a recording of a private phone call with state and local officials obtained by the Center for Public Integrity, the White House's Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, urging these areas to take measures to mitigate the spread, like avoiding crowds and using masks, arguing data from previous hotspots show such measures work. Still, far too many people haven't gotten the message. When the officers arrived, they didn't notice uh, large amounts of people on the roadway. In Los Angeles, house parties like this one leading authorities to say they'll start turning off power and water at places that host such functions, especially repeat offenders. These large house parties have essentially become nightclubs. Some research has shown that 10% of people cause 80% of the spread. In a stunning move in the midst of a pandemic, the town of Sturgis, South Dakota, preparing to host a motorcycle rally, expected to draw hundreds of thousands of people. No masks required. We want to stress personal responsibility to our visitors and our residents as this uh, gathering moves forward. New infections are steady or falling in all but three states. But with testing rates falling off, these positive trends likely don't show the whole picture. Meanwhile, the number of daily deaths on the rise in 15 states and stubbornly high nationwide, averaging more than 1,000 a day for the past seven days. The CDC today forecasting more than 20,000 additional U.S. deaths in just over the next three weeks. And as more schools reopen for in-person classes, cases of coronavirus are popping up daily. We're trying to open up schools in the middle of a raging forest fire in many parts of the country, and we can't do that. Outbreaks in Georgia and Mississippi proof that in-person learning is risky in some places, which is why nearly 7 million children will begin the year remotely. You've got to say, try as best as you can to get the children back to school, but one size does not fit all. 
And in a sign of just how out of control this virus remains in the United States, uh, we just got a new uh, estimate from an influential model at the University of Washington now projecting that nearly 300,000 people will have died in America by December 1st. Pamela? All right, Athena Jones, thank you for bringing us the latest there. And I want to now bring in uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta to further discuss all of this. And first, I want to get to this breaking news that just came in, uh, Sanjay, from IHME. This is a group of researchers behind this influential uh, modeling at the University of Washington, projecting that there could be 300,000 deaths by December 1st if things do not turn around. Um, of course, as we know, we've discussed models aren't always accurate. Um, but, but what is the main takeaway for the American people? I mean, that is an eye-popping number. Yeah, I mean, I think the main takeaway, and this is a model, by the way, that the White House pays uh, close attention to as well, as you know, Pamela, I think the main takeaway is that um, the models, that they take all their various data points, they're saying things are not going to get better. I mean, if you just do the math, you're talking about more than a thousand people a day continuing to die for the rest of the year, which is sort of what we're at now. That's what this model is starting to say. But it also says what you see on the screen, this model. They say if you have national mask mandates, you bring the number of people who will die during this time period down by about 70,000 people. So they're starting to put definition around just the objective impact of masks. You know, we know it's helpful, but they're saying here's how helpful it could be. And this is actually coming as this infectious disease experts banded together to send a letter to to the vice president, Mike Pence, um, asking the White House to issue a federal mask mandate. Um, right now, nearly 40 states, as we know, have some type of uh, mask order in place. And then, you know, when you think about mandating it at a federal level, uh, Sanjay, what do you think the difference would make? I think it would be considerable, uh, Pamela. I wouldn't think of this as in, as in a linear fashion, like 40 out of 50 states means 80% sort of as good. The problem is if you start to get these penetrations, you know, in areas where people aren't wearing masks, you get significant spreading events. People are still mobile, as you know, Pamela, this mm -hmm. time of year around the country. So I think that's why a national mask mandate that is, you know, enforced, that people actually do this, it would probably make the biggest difference. So let's talk about the point you just made that, you know, look, people are still mobile. They're getting out there. Um, when you look at the numbers, deaths are a lagging indicator. The hope is that people see those numbers as they go up, that the people will take it more seriously. But how concerned are you about complacency right now? People having pandemic fatigue, wanting to go on vacation, you know, vacation, be with their friends and family this time of year. How concerning is that to you? Well, you know, I mean, part of this is what we're reporting on sort of nationally, but then also just anecdotally where I live in Atlanta. I mean, you do see this fatigue for, for certain, and some of the data bears that out. You know, about 50% of the country right now, for example, is wearing masks. Uh, that gives you some indication that they may not be taking this as seriously as they should or even as they once did. So, you know, I, that, that's a concerning sort of point. But I also think the first point you made, you know, these places, they have these terrible death counts and, and then people start, you know, becoming cognizant of that. You'd hate to think that we need to redline in all these places around the country before significant change is made. Hopefully we're learning some lessons that people can apply even if they're not in the middle of a, of a you know, real crisis. Yeah, and one of the big challenges right now is to get young people to care, right? I mean, that is, they are such a crucial component in all of this because even if they're not getting very sick, they can spread it very easily. Dr. Fauci implored young people to, to not be a weak link in the chain of fighting this virus, and he gave this warning. Here's what he said. What we're seeing more and more of now are two things. Young people who actually get a serious outcome of the disease itself before they even recover and clear the virus. 
So how do you get young people to care mm. more? Sanjay, simple as that. What do you do? Yeah, this is a really interesting one, uh, Pamela. I'll tell you just, and again, this is part doctor and part journalist, but you know, it is true that younger people are far less likely to get sick. So the idea that you know, maybe they're not fearful of this is, is probably true. I mean, you hear the, uh, the death statistics are thankfully very low among particularly young people. But the idea that they could rise to this occasion, that they could be empathetic, that they wear a mask not to necessarily just protect themselves, but to protect others, and, you know, where's your empathy at a time like this? I think, I don't know, may, maybe that's a, a stronger message. I don't mm -hmm. know that fright and scaring people really works or certainly works long term. But, you know, this idea that these young people, I think as Dr. Fauci was saying, could really rise to this occasion. And within a few weeks of wearing a mask, mm -hmm. we could be looking at the other side of this curve. That's all, all they're asking. They have a lot so of power. <laughs> a lot, lot of, power. of power, I would yeah. say. And then you have this news coming out today that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine tested positive and only found out because he was tested before meeting the president. Right. What does that say about how many people are walking around with this virus and unknowingly spreading it? I mean, he, he likely wouldn't have gotten a test otherwise, I, I assume. That's right. That's right. I think that, you know, some, some estimates, which I think are very reasonable ones, say we're undercounting tenfold. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the side of the screen, you know, you see whatever, five, close to five million infections. It could be 25, you know, even 50 uh, that. But I think the interesting thing about Governor DeWine is just what you said, Pamela. We, we think of general testing in certain locations, mainly for people who have symptoms. Surveillance testing would be the kind of testing where you're randomly starting to surveil communities. What Governor DeWine had was something called assurance testing, mm -hmm. providing an assurance that he didn't have it because he was going to go meet with the president. It is not impossible or inconceivable that we shouldn't all have assurance testing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would know before visiting your kids at school or visiting your family or whatever it might be, and they would know. You know, that's the assurance testing, and that is not a fantasy. It still strikes me seven months into this, we have not... We can't even nearly achieve what Governor DeWine was able to achieve today. Yeah, we certainly couldn't. And to that point, the Ohio governor tested positive as part of this routine testing because he was going to be around the president. Mm. He's the third person in the last week who's tested positive because he was going to be around the president. Yet the president downplays testing. Does this not emphasize <laughs> that it is that it is important not just for the president's protection, but for everyone? That's right. I mean, that's that's precisely the point. I mean, this this type of testing, it seems this is uh, seems so, so grand because it's only being offered at the White House. It's only for the president. The reality is that we could and should uh, all have access to that sort of testing. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who are going back to work in crowded locations, sending our kids back to school. I mean, bus drivers and teachers would love to have some assurance that the kids that they're interacting with who can spread this virus aren't, you know, aren't mm -hmm. infected. Yeah. We don't have that yet. And let's talk about the schools, because that is still a very big talker. And, you know, you look at the numbers, nearly 7 million kids will start the school year online. 62 of the nation's largest school districts are now going to all virtual learning. And 17 uh, parents have to choose all, you know, in person or online. 10 are hybrid. Look, <laughs> I'm a parent. I'm looking at this. It's just all kind of confusing. It, it is confusing. And, you know, as we've, I mean, you and I have been saying all week, it's, it's requiring all of us become epidemiologists yeah. in a way and figure it out. Uh, I'll give you a couple, of, a couple of things I think are important. I think schools do need to have some of the basic infrastructure in place, uh, which people can sort of guess by now. We could put a list up. But, you know, they have to have the space to be able to actually create the physical distancing, masks within schools, which some districts aren't even mandating that. Uh, they have to be able to have hand hygiene and, and all the things that we've talked about. But I think the larger issue, Pamela, still comes back to testing. What sort of testing is going to be available? And, very importantly, 
be very clear in the language about what happens if a kid tests positive. How is mm -hmm. that going to be handled? Who are the close contacts? What's going to happen to the faculty member, teacher, wh whoever? All the people, the bus driver, all of right. that. I think it's going to be a lot of stutter starting, Pamela. I think for the remaining school districts that haven't gone virtual, you're going to see a start, stop, start, stop, and maybe just finally a stop. And then you look at other countries, you know, like Israel, where they started and then had to completely pull back because of what happened. So we'll be keeping an eye on all of yeah. this as it plays out as schools start to, to reopen around this time of year. Sanjay, thank you so much. That was a Got great it, discussion. Thank you. You too. Thank and be sure to tune in tonight for our global CNN Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, hosted by our very own Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper. They will be joined by Olympic gold medalist Michael Phelps. That is right here on CNN at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. President Trump now says a key solution to the fight against the coronavirus could happen by Election Day, but his own scientists don't necessarily agree. And then developing a successful coronavirus vaccine is only the first step. A look at how a vaccine could be distributed across the country up next. What evidence have you seen about children being immune from this virus? All you have to do is read the newspapers or read the, read the medical reports. And our politics lead fallout from the president's false claims about coronavirus continue to spiral. When he told Fox News the children were, quote, almost immune to the virus, Facebook deleted the video from Trump's page, and then Twitter temporarily suspended the Trump campaign's ability to tweet. Now, as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports, the president appears to be out of step with his own White House health experts on vaccines, forecasts, and more. Another day, another case of presidential coronavirus misinformation. Today, President Trump suggesting without any evidence that a vaccine could be ready by Election Day. I'm optimistic that it'll be probably around that date. I believe we'll have the vaccine before the end of the year, certainly, but around that date, yes, I think so. Contradicting government health experts who say a vaccine likely won't be ready until the end of the year at the earliest. My projection, which is only a projection, is that somewhere towards the end of the year, the beginning of 2021, we will know whether we have a safe and effective vaccine. Trump's claim, the latest wishful thinking from a president who has repeatedly made false and misleading statements about the pandemic. It's going away now. It'll go away. Like Things go away. Absolutely. It's uh, no question in my mind. It will go away. Dr. Fauci also contradicting that prediction. As long as you have any member of society, any demographic group who's not seriously trying to get to the end game of suppressing this, it will continue to smolder and smolder and smolder. And then there's the president's false claim about the coronavirus and children. The fact is that they are virtually immune from this problem and we have to open our schools. I'm talking about from getting very sick. Their immune systems are very, very strong. They're very powerful and they they seem to be able to handle it very well. I get the sense that maybe uh, the president doesn't, uh, doesn't know what the word immune means. Between 250 and 350,000 children have been infected by this uh, virus. Children may be a little less likely to get infected, and we don't know how likely they are to spread it to others, but they're not immune from the disease. No one who hasn't had it is immune from this disease. Facebook and Twitter removed the video of Trump's false claim about children to avoid spreading misinformation. 
with Twitter even briefly freezing the Trump campaign's Twitter account. As for the campaign, today the Commission on Presidential Debates rejecting Trump's request to schedule a fourth debate early next month, writing, Three 90-minute debates work well to fulfill the voter education purposes the debates are intended to serve, and stating they are committed to the schedule of debates it has planned. Trump has claimed an earlier debate is needed because of early and mail-in voting this year. Earlier today, President Trump made this wild accusation about former Vice President Joe Biden. Let's listen. He's going to do things that nobody ever would ever think even possible because he's following the radical left agenda. Take away your guns, destroy your Second Amendment, no religion, no anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God, he's against guns. Biden is a practicing Roman Catholic. What's the strategy here, Jeremy? Uh, well, Pam, in recent weeks, uh, the president has, and his campaign have been trying to tie Joe Biden to the quote-unquote radical left and shore up support among the president's evangelical base. But like he often does, uh, Pam, the president here appears to be overreaching, making this bizarre claim that Joe Biden is against uh, God, which frankly doesn't make any sense given the fact that Joe Biden has talked publicly and knowledgeably about his faith uh, far more than the current president certainly has. And the Biden campaign is saying in a statement that Joe Biden's faith is at the core of who he is, and they note that it's been a source of strength and comfort in times of extreme hardship for the former vice president. Pam? Yeah, and I noticed um, our D Daniel Dale, um, our colleague, Jeremy, tweeted this picture of uh, the campaign had actually photoshopped a picture of Biden praying yesterday, praying alone yesterday. They, they tweeted out this picture, and now today the president is saying that he wants to hurt God. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much for bringing us the very latest. We appreciate it. And joining me now to discuss is the co-director at Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital, Dr. Peter, Peter Hotez. I'm so glad you're on, Dr. Hotez, because there's so much to discuss as it pertains to vaccines. You know, we're, we keep hearing that the federal government is investing billions of dollars in several companies working on a vaccine. Help us understand how you expect this to all play out with all these different companies working on a vaccine. Well, the good news, Pamela, is is that I'm pretty confident we'll have several COVID-19 vaccines that actually work, uh, protect against the, the infection or possibly uh, reduce severity of illness instead, uh, and are, are safe. Uh, and, and, and I say that with some confidence because we've been working on coronavirus vaccines for the last decade. And, and we also have a COVID-19 vaccine that we're accelerating for global health purposes uh, mm -hmm. uh, to distribute around the world. And the reason is because it's not all that complicated in many ways. If you induce high levels of virus neutralizing antibody against the spike protein, you will get protective immunity. We showed this with the first SARS uh, virus and then with the MERS coronavirus, and I think we'll do it with this one. That's the good news. The, the, the problem is that it takes time to show that these vaccines actually work in people as they do in laboratory animals and that they're safe. And that's the part that you can't accelerate. So these vaccines are only going into phase three trials now. Uh, the first one is the Moderna vaccine. Others will follow. Hopefully ours will be uh, on that list as well. And then over the course of the next year, we'll have accumulated enough data showing these vaccines actually work and are safe. 
to get them certified by the FDA and the Verback Committee and the ACP the other regulatory mechanisms that we've carefully crafted over the years mm -hmm. to assure the public that they're safe. And that's that's where the issue comes That's in. the key. But you said over the, the next year, um, how soon then do you think there will be enough safety data to back up a vaccine for it to be released to the public, realistically? So, so there are different estimates. I tend to be on the more conservative side. I put it in third quarter of 2021. Hmm. We've heard Fauci say maybe Q1, maybe Q2, if we split the difference, uh, uh, you know, quarter two of, of 2021. And even then, that's a world land speed record. That's an incredibly uh, uh, aggressive uh, timeline. But I think we can do it and still show sa safety and efficacy. And today, the FDA uh, commissioner, Dr. Stephen Hahn, he addressed concerns, this idea that there could be political pressure affecting the vaccine procedure. This is what he wrote um, in the Washington Post. He said, quote, I have repeatedly said that all FDA decisions have been and will continue to be based solely on good science and data. The public can count on that commitment. But we've seen the president uh, routinely dismiss science and data along the way as it pertains to coronavirus. Could the White House overrule the FDA to get a vaccine ready by election, by the election? Uh, I, you know, I don't think so. I mean, they, there's a possibility they, they can try. I, I don't think they'll do that. You know, when the, when the president talks about vaccines ready before the election. If you listen to what the way the president speaks or the non-scientists in the White House speak, they very much think of this as a manufacturing problem. They kind of talk about vaccines in the same context that they'll talk about making ventilators or making diagnostic kits. And, and, and that's kind of their understanding. So yes, I think we could have uh, several of these vaccines manufactured at scale uh, before the end of 2020, but I don't see a path by which we can know these vaccines are safe and actually work uh, until uh, quite a bit uh, later. And I, you know, will the pre could the, there is a celebrated op-ed piece by Paul Offit, who's called it the October surprise, saying that the president may try to pull a fast one and get it out sooner. Uh, I, I don't see that happening. You know, the scientists have the power and the ability to draw the line in our regulatory systems are robust. Yeah, you can't shortchange safety when it comes to something as important as this. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Peter Hotez. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, putting food on the table is getting a lot harder for millions of Americans as we get a big sign from Capitol Hill that help may not be on the way. That's next. And our politics lead, some senators are leaving town for the weekend as millions of Americans are hanging in the balance. The White House warns if an economic stimulus deal doesn't happen by tomorrow, it won't happen at all. And President Trump says he is considering an executive order if negotiations fail. I want to bring in CNN's Phil Maddenly is on Capitol Hill. You've been tracking all of this, and I have the age-old question for you, Phil. Is there any progress? No. The short answer is no. In fact, one person who's been involved with these talks, I asked him just a short while ago, there is another meeting between the top four negotiators at 5 p.m. tonight. It'll be the ninth meeting in the course of 11 days, over 16 hours of negotiations up to this point. Did this person think that this meeting would be the breakthrough? The person responded, this is not a moment for miracles, so no. 
that's basically where things stand right now. And, and Pamela, I, I think what, what you need to understand about what's gone on over the course of these last eight or nine meetings, over the course of these last two weeks, is there are just fundamental, there is a fundamental difference of opinion on what is needed right now. When you talk to Democrats, they want to go big, even bigger than the $2.2 trillion package that was signed into law back in March. Republicans want to be more targeted, and Republicans have assumed that Democrats would, over the course of these negotiations, come off their top line numbers, more than $3 trillion, $600 flat rate for the extended unemployment insurance, all of these issues, and Democrats have not moved. So up to this point, it has mostly been frustration. It has mostly been Democrats who feel like they're in a good place in these negotiations, assuming that it will be Republicans who come their way. Right now, no one's going either way, and that has led to pretty much a stalemate. And then you have the president saying he may sign an executive order if negotiations fail, but how practical is that? Is that just being used as, as leverage, or um, legally could he actually do that? So the way it's being viewed up here on Capitol Hill, and this isn't just Democrats, this is Republicans as well, is that this has been a leverage play up to this point. Threaten going after this unilaterally in the hopes of spurring Democrats to maybe give a little bit more. Right now, with Democrats not moving, it becomes to the point where this is becoming more realistic. Perhaps executive action on unemployment, perhaps on a payroll tax, perhaps on eviction moratorium. The eviction moratorium, people up here believe he has the grounds to pursue that based on federal policy. The other two, there is questionable action on the legal side of things. Even Republicans, not totally sure it's legal at this point in time. But I think the bigger issue now is, does it meet the scope and scale that's required at this moment, given where the economy stands and given what we've seen with the resurgence of the virus? And I think the answer to that from both sides is no. However, the White House holding it out there, hoping it jars things loose and certainly willing to pursue it if it doesn't, Pamela. All right, Phil Maddenly on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much, Phil. And while Republicans and Democrats battle over the new relief bill, we learned today another 1.2 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley joins me to discuss. So, Julia, the number of claims is actually lower than expected and down from the week before. But this is still a massive amount of Americans out of work right now. You're absolutely right. These are still eye-watering numbers. I think one of the big questions we have to ask is, what does this mean for the payrolls report tomorrow? And I can tell you, it's a real wild card right now. We're expecting, in some cases, to see a net one and a half million jobs added. Other people, though, are saying that the jobs recovery now has stalled. It may even have reversed, and we could see job losses for the month of July. It's anyone's guess, and the challenge here, as Phil was alluding to, the health crisis is moving quicker than we can simply collect the data to get a sense of how people are reacting here. Mm -hmm. Yes, we saw less bad numbers than expected. I refuse to say better today when we're talking about over one million people still asking yeah, for nothing help. nothing to celebrate. Yeah, there's nothing to celebrate here. We did see the number of people actually collecting benefits, continuing to collect drop. But Pamela, here's the bottom line. This report today said 32 million people are collecting some form of benefit. Millions of people have now lost that extra $600 worth of support. In some cases, that's 90% less cash to spend on a weekly basis. It's catastrophic for families all across America here. There's nothing that we will hear in these two days that justifies Congress reducing the support that people are getting. Yeah, I, I spoke to a woman yesterday who relied on that money to help pay her rent and has two children worried about what to do. She's a single mom. I mean, that is a story of so many Americans right now across the country. And they're also struggling to make ends meet um, as they're dealing with these skyrocketing prices at the grocery store. How much money are we talking? 
too much. This is a sticker shock on steroids. Let me give you a sense of what we saw for price rises between February and June of this year. We've got meat prices rising 11%, egg prices 10%, beef and veal look 20%. What happened here is the supply chains were upended because we were eating more at home. We also saw people getting sick in meat production plants, so that impacted prices there too. The good news is some of this is moderated, but again, 30 million Americans in the third week of July said they simply didn't have enough to eat this week. Mm. It's just not a time to reduce support in the face of all these challenges. Yeah, that's Anna. just unacceptable. Julia Chatterley, yeah. thank you so much. And up next, one airline is saying that it uh, may be years before air travel returns to normal as the TSA puts in place new security precautions. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine speaking right now. He just tested positive for coronavirus ahead of meeting President Trump. And this is what he said moments ago. I feel fine. Uh, have a headache. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I get a lot of headaches throughout my life. So a headache is not uh, anything that unusual. So besides that, uh, I, I feel well. So um, uh, a big surprise to me and... Uh, Certainly a big surprise to our family. Uh, when I found out, I called Fran, then I called uh, each of our uh, seven children because I figured the news would be out pretty quickly, so I wanted them to hear that uh, directly from me, and I was able to reach all of them. And uh, so here we are. Fran, I just got back here uh, in Cedarville, I guess, about a half an hour ago. So. All right, so in the wake of, of hearing from Dr. Er, from the governor there in Ohio, I want to bring back in Dr. Peter Hotez to discuss, and you just heard him saying there um, that this was a big surprise. The reason it was a big surprise is because this was a routine test he took, um, an called an assurance test, before he was to be in contact with the president today, and it came back positive. What does this tell you about the importance of widespread testing? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just say the governor looks pretty good on, on the video there. And so I wish I wish him all the best and his family and and uh, hope he does well with it. And i and looking like he, he probably will. So that's great news. Um, you know, it's, uh, up to a third of patients can just present with headaches. So they can present with fever, cough, headache, or they can be completely asymptomatic. And uh, up to uh, half of people can be without any symptoms at all. So there's not really any especially for a public figure who's out and about interacting with uh, lots of individuals. All right, Dr. Peter Hotez, thanks so much for uh, giving us that uh, perspective on the situation unfolding there in Ohio with the governor testing positive today uh, before he was to meet with President Trump. Thanks so much. And turning now to our world lead, in Europe, countries are experiencing a second wave of the coronavirus pandemic. Germany recording more than 1,000 new cases in one day for the first time in nearly three months. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleiken is in Berlin for us. So, uh, Fred, why is this happening and what steps are being taken to slow this outbreak? Mm. 
Hi there, Pamela. Well, the German government is saying they believe that there's two reasons why this is happening. On the one hand, they say they believe people have simply gotten a little bit lax with some of the coronavirus rules that are out there, like, for instance, physical distancing, like wearing masks when you're indoors and sanitizing as well. They also say that travelers arriving in Germany from other countries might be bringing the coronavirus with them. And so what the German government says they want to do is they want to take drastic action very quickly. One of the things that you hear from political leaders here all the time is they don't want to have a situation here like in the United States, where all of a sudden they take their eyes off the ball and have tens of thousands of cases every day. So one of the things they're doing is they're putting in place free coronavirus tests for all travelers who come to this country. And on top of that, starting Saturday, they're also going to have mandatory tests. That means people need to take a test who come in from so-called high risk countries. Now, of course, here in Germany and in the rest of Europe, the United States does count as a high risk country. And we were at one of these test centers today. It basically takes about half an hour for people to get their turn. And usually they get the results of their tests within a day, Pamela. All right. Uh, thanks so much. We appreciate it, Fred Pleiken. And I want to turn now to our national lead. TSA is adding new safety measures at airports after more than 1,500 workers tested positive for coronavirus. But does that mean airports and flying will return to normal anytime soon? CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine joins me live from Washington's Reagan National Airport. And Pete, walk us through these new safety precautions. Well, the TSA first tested prototype acrylic screens here at Reagan National Airport, and now it's ordering an additional 1,200 individual screens to go in at 37 airports. It considers its busiest hubs across the country. The price tag, two and a half million dollars. They'll go into places like along the conveyor belt and at document check-in. This is really to protect passengers, but also protect employees. This announcement is being made as the number of TSA employees who have tested positive for coronavirus just crested 1,500. About 1,000 have recovered and six have died. The most recent cases, unsurprisingly, at airports in Florida, but also in New Orleans, in Denver, in San Francisco. The help cannot come soon enough for these employees. The order just placed, but the screens will not be installed until the fall. And what are airlines warning in terms of how long it could take before air travel fully recovers? Well, maybe the most dire warning coming out of Germany, airline Lufthansa says it will not see a full recovery until 20. 24. Here domestically, the head of Delta, CEO at Bastion, says it will take two years of a choppy recovery in a new memo to employees. He says the airline will really not start to see its full recovery until there's a widely available vaccine. You know, what's so interesting here is the demand is simply not there for airlines. As coronavirus cases started to surge across the country, demand for travel, they say, started to level off. There is a bit of a glimmer of hope. The number of passengers who passed through TSA security checkpoints across the country reached a new pandemic high on Sunday, nearly 800,000. But to put that in perspective, it's only about 30 percent of a year ago, Pamela. Hmm, that is quite the perspective. Pete, thanks so much. Well, a historic moment expected any day now as Joe Biden weighs a diverse field of VP contenders. What sources are now telling us about Biden's thinking up next. And we're back with our 2020 lead. Any day now, Joe Biden will name his running mate a critical choice that's likely to make history with Senator Kamala Harris, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, and Congresswoman Karen Bass, believed to be among the more serious contenders out of the 11 women who have been vetted. CNN's Jeff Zeleny digs into what's driving Biden's decision. The best vice president America's ever had, Mr. Joe Biden. 
It was a role Joe Biden loved playing. He's been unafraid to give it to me straight, even if we disagree. In fact, especially when we disagree. As the former vice president enters the final stages of finding a running mate of his own, it's the relationship with Barack Obama that's enlightening and complicating his search. When they left the White House, Obama and Biden were friends and trusted allies. But it didn't start out that way. It was a surprisingly easy bond, even to them. And about six months in, the president looked at me and said, you know, Joe, you know what surprised me? We've become such good friends. <laughs> I said, surprised you. Friends of Biden tell CNN his partnership with Obama offers one of the most instructive guides for how he's making his decision. It's been very orderly. There's a, every one of the women I've, we've interviewed is qualified. And uh, I've narrowed it down. You'll find out shortly. Five months ago, Biden set the parameters of his search during the final primary debate with Bernie Sanders. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. Since then, aides tell CNN, 11 women have undergone vetting of financial records, personal backgrounds, and medical histories. People close to the search believe California Senator Kamala Harris and former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice are among those he's most seriously considering. With steep challenges from coronavirus to the economy awaiting the next president, friends of Biden tell CNN he's intent on finding a governing partner, not simply a campaign one. Yet one moment from the campaign trail still reverberates loudly, when Harris questioned his Senate record and fight against federally mandated busing to desegregate schools. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Privately, Biden's friends and family, including his wife Jill, were furious. Publicly, Biden has brushed it aside, including in an interview released today. I don't hold grudges, and I made it really clear that I don't hold grudges. I think it was a debate. It's as simple as that. And, uh, and she's very much in contention. And that's another lesson from his time with Obama, who in 2007, Biden once referred to as clean and articulate. He apologized and went on to serve alongside the nation's first black president. As Biden searches for his own Biden, the dynamic is different. She will be a history-making choice. But above all, his friends say, he's looking for someone who can ultimately say this. That's why my family is so proud to call ourselves honorary Bidens. Now, there is no question that Biden is looking for someone who can replicate the rapport that he had with President Obama, a governing partner with whose loyalty is unquestioned. But, Pamela, so important to remember that 12 years ago this week, when Obama first sat down with his interview with Biden, the two barely knew each other at all. They had a frosty relationship. So this is a relationship and partnership that can grow. We'll have an answer, we believe, early to mid next week. Pamela. We'll see what that answer is then. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff Zeleny, for bringing us that report. And joining me now to discuss the Veep Stakes, CNN senior national correspondent Kyung Law and CNN political embed producer Jasmine Wright. They are both also featured in the new film on HBO Max, On the Trail. I cannot wait to watch that. Uh, before we get to, to uh, the HBO show, though, I want to go to you, Kyung. Uh, you covered Kamala Harris, and now she is top of the list, as we heard, as a potential Biden running mate. What does she bring to the table for Biden? Well, she brings, first of all, some raw political talent. We saw it in her presidential run, especially at the beginning, and we're seeing it now as the country discusses criminal justice reform. Uh, certainly, she brings a lot of excitement. Again, something we saw a lot in the early parts of her presidential campaign and in the social media space, a new generation excited about her run. 
That also brings it some negatives because, especially in social media, we saw a lot of bots, a lot of criticism about her past as a prosecutor. But the most important thing, Pam, is that she brings the fact of her identity, that she is a black woman. She is a biracial woman. She has said it on the national stage that black women are the spine of this party and the future of the Democratic Party, Pam. All right. I want to play a clip from the documentary. It's uh, Iowa primary night uh, when we were all anxiously awaiting some very delayed results. We don't have any results. I'll keep walking around. Okay. Kyung and I work very well together. I figure out the information that we need to get and then get that information. We call it finessing. What do you have on the delay? Nothing. Don't we all remember that? I remember I was actually in the hospital in labor and I was like thinking, oh my gosh, what's going on in Iowa? But you guys worked as a team um, throughout the primary, uh, finessing and using your intuition. Uh, Jasmine, do you think there may be a moment where that intuition kicks in and we feel the VP announcement is imminent? What do you think? Look, Pam, thank you so much for having me on. But there is no good intuition without good reporting, right? In that moment, in, a, in another clip where you see uh, Kyung, you know, kind of tracking uh, Klobuchar's pulling out of the race, that I'm texting her because I'm noticing that we're off schedule. I'm noticing that she did not do a radio interview with that morning, which is out of the ordinary for her. Mm-hmm. I'm noticing all of these things. So mm-hmm. those that good reporting led to the good intuition to know that things were awry and she ultimately dropped out that day. And so when we talk about VP, you know, it certainly seems as though a decision is imminent. As Jeff Zelny said, we can expect it sometime between early to, to mid next week, but we're not gonna know that without that good reporting. And that's one of the reasons why CNN has to be here in DC tracking the VP candidates um, and looking forward to that upcoming announcement. It's so true. You have to be a good detective and look at all the little details and put it together. And and you both are so great at that. We're going to see it play out in the documentary. You both also speak in the film about being women of color and how that informs your coverage. Why do you think that that's important, particularly in these historic times with a very diverse uh, group of contenders, Hyung? Uh, Especially in this year, Pam, Uh, if you look at the latest data from the Center for American Women in Politics, there are nearly 300 women of color running for Congress running for Congress right now in 2020. So it, it is, we thought of 2018 as the year of the woman. 2020 is the year of the women of color in many ways, trying to go to Washington. It is three times the number of what it was in 2016. So the reporting ranks reflecting what's happening in the diversification of this country. Absolutely. Great to have you both on, Kyung and uh, Jasmine. Thank you both and be sure to catch them and many of our talented colleagues And this new documentary, On the Trail, Inside the 2020 Primaries, streaming now on HBO Max. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at PamelaBrownCNN or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. I'm Pamela Brown and for Jake Tapper, and our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.